week, a week in which we've seen answer to prayer, a week in when that prayer seemed to have such an effect upon us, and then we wondered what was going on. We've been praying for a long time for Tessa Cox, and she has received a new lung to answer a prayer of many. And then there were some difficulties during the week. And we were all wondering what was going on and how was it going to work out. But you know, God is sufficient, and he works through those times also. And so this morning we're going to take a few moments just to thank the Lord for being our solid rock, for being our answer to prayer, for being our refuge in the time of storm, to being our strength in our weakness. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the answer to prayer, the many in this church that have given time and energy and have assembled together in secret places and places only known unto themselves to to pray and to lift up Tessa and Jack. Lord, we thank you for the answer to prayer. We thank you for the lung. We thank you for the transplant that went so well. And Father, we know that there will be times of challenge and there will be times that we will wonder what is going on. But Father, our trust is in you. Our strength is found in you, for you are our solid rock. And Father, upon that truth we stand. This we ask in your precious name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a football player by the name of O.J. Simpson. Won a Heisman Trophy, was an NFL star, was just a fantastic individual at the time, and uh, did movies. He just had his name plastered uh, all over the place. You couldn't hardly watch television without a commercial coming across or without an interview or something with O.J. Simpson. Then in June 1994, his wife and a friend of hers, Ronald Goldman, was found dead outside Brown's condominium. It wasn't very long before O.J. was charged with the murder and was supposed to turn himself in. But many of you know that he found his way to his Ford Bronco and uh, got in the back of it and was driving down the interstates of Los Angeles. And all our TV shows were interrupted so that we could watch this white Bronco travel down the road at a slow speed as police were escorting it and trying to do whatever they could without intimidating or causing any more damage. He makes his way to his house, he gets out, and they arrest him. And thus begins one of the most interesting trials of all. People watched it. They took their lunch breaks and watched it. They skipped classes and watched it. They wanted to see what was going to happen. And one of the highlights was when the defense brought to the knowledge of the court the glove, a bloody glove that had been found. And Johnny Cochran asked O.J. to put this glove on to see if it would fit. And O.J. spread his fingers wide, at least my interpretation, and tried to fit the glove on. It allowed Johnny Cochran to speak those words, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And then on October the 3rd, 1995, the jury found him innocent of the charges. You know, as I thought about that, and I thought about this message out of Job, I was wondering what Job was feeling through all of this. And I really believe that Job was sort of feeling those words of Johnny Cochran. You know, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. 
I have been obedient to God. I've trusted God. I've been faithful to him, and my lands have been taken away. My children have been taken away, and I sit here in ashes with sores all over my body in pain. If there is a sin, then I, I inherit this. But if there is no sin, then I want justice, and I want to be acquitted before my friends and my neighbors. Because as we begin this morning... We see that those friends came, did they not? They came there in chapter 2 of Job, and they sat with Job for seven days and seven nights. They sat there, and they were quiet. They were silent. They knew Job was in such pain and such agony that all the words that they would speak just would not suffice to ease that pain. And so they sat there with him. Quiet, silence, ministering in their own special way. And after Job speaks in chapter 3, his friends feel compelled to share their need. Have you ever had friends that just felt compelled to tell you something? I love pastoring churches because people come up to me and go, Brother Stike, Brother Stike, do you know what so-and-so said? I know you needed to know this, so I just wanted to share it with you. You go, are you kidding me? You know? And this was sort of like the friends with Job, okay? They come to him. Eliphaz shows himself there in chapter 4 and begins to talk about, well, you know, Job, God rewards those that obey him, and he punishes those who sin. There in Job, the fourth chapter, verse 8 through 9, he says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they're perished. This is a concept that is found not only in the Old Testament, but is prevalent today. We have men and women that believe that as long as you obey God, and as long as you live the straight and narrow, as long as you obey the Ten Commandments, as long as you watch out for your neighbor, then only good things are going to happen to you. And then when troubles come, when struggles come, they're, they're, you know, they're taken back and they step back from it because they understand that something's not right here and Job's suffering had to be at least according to his friend had to be because he was doing something wrong and God was disciplining him and God was going to correct him one of the things that I've learned about discipline is that if you were going to discipline our children one of the better ways to do it is tell them what you're disciplining them for you know it's hard to just come up and just take a kid and put him in time out and they're going what happened now you just sit there i'll tell you later you know that's not very productive is it well this is what's happening to job his friends are saying you've disobeyed him come clean and god will bless you you know because god blesses those that obey him and as job listens to that he only gets more confused and he only gets more upset and it just eats away at him as he thinks about here's his friend coming and telling him that if you'll just obey god if you'll just be faithful to god god would not have done this so there must be something wrong in your life notice also that bildad the traditionalist shows up and he begins to share what he thinks and he believes that job has forgotten god that in all that's gone around him and all the pain and all the destruction and all the grief that's happened, he must have forgotten God and this act has been interpreted as godliness. And therefore, he says there in Job eight thirteen, 
He says, such is the destiny of all who forget God, so perish the hope of the godless. Somehow Job must have eradicated from his mind and eradicated from his heart that relationship that he had and have forgotten God because of the pain and because of all that was around him. It overwhelmed him to the point that he assumed that God was not in it. Job needed to get back to trusting God, back to relying on that solid rock, back to that place of uh, trust in the Almighty. But notice his third neighbor comes, his friend. Zophar comes, the religionist, and he says, Well, what's really happened, Job, is that you have done something in your past that even God has forgotten. There is a sin out there. There's a sin of omission or a sin of commission that is so far out that uh, God has just cast it away and it's there eating away at you. You can't get away from it. Some forgotten, hidden sin. For sure, Job is totally confused now because here's his friends who are supposed to be lifting him up, encouraging him, helping him through this, and they're saying to him, hey, there's some hidden sin in your life. You've forgotten God. There is some disobedience that you need to make right with him. You know, as I look at our friends when we go through struggles, I realize that we ought to be about listening to one another. One of the very first techniques is to be able to listen. And that's hard for us. That's hard for many of us because we want to solve things. We want to fix things. We want to make things right. We want to understand it. We want to get down to the nitty-gritty and to be able to dissect it and to understand why things are going on the way they are. James 1.19 says that we ought to, first of all, if we're going to help our neighbor and help our friends and help our church members, that we need to listen. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to becoming angry. You know, we have classes now when we particularly do marriage uh, education, we talk about listening, listening skills, active listening skills. Many of us are selective listeners. I hear what I want to hear. I hear the points that I want to, to bring back and place into my argument. I listen in such a way that it benefits me, and I fail to hear the pain and the agony. I fail to hear the emotion, and I fail to hear the need in the other person. What God is telling us, if we're going to be that friend, if we're going to help our church members, if we're going to help our neighbors, if we're going to help our family members, we need to learn how to listen to them. Be slow to speak, slow to give advice, slow to share our own life experiences, but free to listen. He also says that we ought to show compassion in Colossians, the third chapter, verse 12 through 13. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other and forgiving whatever grievance you may have against one another. To show compassion, to be with people right where they are. Not to where we want them to be, not to bring them to our particular place, but to meet them right where they are. And that is part of the gospel, is it not? Is to meet men and women at the level where they happen to be. Not to anticipate them to be somewhere else, not to hope for them somewhere else, but to realize that where they're at in their pain and agony, to show compassion in such a way that we fail to exercise a judgmental attitude. Just because 
that they've made these statements. Many times we forget to show that compassion to them. You know, Wayne Oates, one of the leading uh, authorities, I guess we would say, on pastoral care, told a story to his young students about how do we do pastoral care? How do we help? How do we share with people? And Wayne would say that one of the most powerful experiences in his life was once he was pastoring a small church and one of the elderly uh, families, couples, one of the uh, mates passed away and his wife uh, passed away. So he went to visit him and he pulled up there in his car and there sat the man on the front porch rocking in his rocking chair. Wayne, being a young uh, seminarian and still in school, really didn't know what he was going to say. Was he going to read passages of Scripture? Was he going to talk about death? And was he going to talk about eternity or heaven? And he said when he walked up on the steps, there was a rocking chair beside him. He sat in the rocking chair, and they rocked for about an hour. Wayne got up, and he says, well, I've got to go. And the guy says, well, it's been the best hour that I've had. And Wayne left. And most of us sat back and go, are you kidding me? There was no great theological uh, message proclaimed there was no great uh, pastoral care uh, message proclaimed it was simply his presence and we need to pray for those that are going through these struggles in Romans the 8th chapter verse 26 he says in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We need to pray for those, our friends, that really don't know how to pray themselves. Have you ever been to that place in your life, that place of, of total emptiness, that you didn't even know how to pray to God? You didn't really know what you were going to ask Him. You were in such agony and such pain, and you were so confused. That you didn't even want to pray. You didn't want to hear from God. You just wanted to be there, to be alone. And we as the body of Christ need to lift up and to encourage and to pray for those that find themselves in such pain and agony. We need to extend a helping hand in Galatians 6. He says, carry each other's burden. And in this way you will fulfill the law of the, of the land and the law of Christ. Carry reaching, extending. Well, you know, as I read these messages from his friends, these are his friends. These are the ones that care about him. These are the ones that travel. These are the ones that sat with him. I can anticipate that poor old Job was not encouraged at all. He was not excited at all. He didn't see any great revelations. He didn't feel any enthusiasm. He didn't feel like things were going in the right way. And as you continue in the book of Job, you see that he begins to lament. He begins to sorrow. He begins to wonder what's going on. Because Job finds himself in this grief, in this grief that is so deep, in this grief that he's unaware of the heavenly drama that's taking place. He's unaware of Satan's charges before God. He regrets the very day of his birth. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in such pain that you just wish that all of it would just go away and that you could be extracted from all this and that you could be free once and for all to laugh and to sing and to be with your friends again? He regretted that day of birth. He wasn't celebrating them with a party anymore. He didn't want to see the date roll around. 
He knew of no sin in his life. He knew he had been obedient to God. He knew he had served God. He knew he had trusted God. Why was this happening to him? Why was all this pain surrounding him? And in all of that, there was total silence. He didn't hear from God. He didn't feel God. He knew nothing of his presence. And so what does God do? Uh, what does Job do? Job says, well, guess what I'll do? I'll subpoena God, and we'll have a court right in heaven. He says, I am going to stand up, and I'm going to come face to face with God, and I'm going to plead my case, and if he kills me, he kills me, but I'm going to seek justice, and I'm going to seek it in my life. Notice Job, the 13th chapter, verse 15. Notice what he says. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my way to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I will be silent and die. Job wants justice. He wants to stand before God Almighty, and he wants to plead his case. He wants to let the heavens know that he hasn't sinned, that he has trusted God, and all this evil that has befallen him and all this pain that is around him is not because of sin. It is because he has been faithful to God. And if God will not listen to him, and if God will not hear him, and God strikes him down, so be it. He wants justice. He wants to be heard in the heavenly court. He is willing to stand and argue his case face to face with God. And we've seen this before in Old Testament history, have we not? We've seen this with Abraham. Abraham began to plead his case for Lot. We find Moses as he came down from the mountain and the children of Israel had disobeyed God. It was Moses who argued before God to spare their lives. And so this procedure this process has happened before in history in which the person accused would be able to stand and face his accuser and present the evidence it's called the oath of innocence it is the oath in which a person who has been wrongly accused can stand up and say i'm innocent i'm innocent before god and they would have to understand that this oath would be of such that if they were wrong, God would strike them and God would punish them. You find it in Exodus, the 22nd chapter, verse 10. You find it in 1 Kings, the 8th chapter, and you find it in 2 Chronicles 6. You find this, this legal custom of an oath of innocence. And so he begins to articulate the attacks that were against him. As you look at Job, you see there in the 30th chapter, he says, the community has begun to mock me. They've seen how far I have fallen. They've seen my property taken away from me. They've seen my children. They've seen me in sickness. And they have begun to mock me in the, front, in the gate. They have spit on me and kicked me around. They've tripped me. And so Job there in chapter 31 begins to list 14 sins. 
He says, these are sins that I have not committed. I'm telling you I'm innocent before God. I tell you I'm innocent before my people. I'm innocent before my children. I am innocent before my wife. I have not sinned before God. And there in chapter 31 he says, if I, if I, if I, 14 times. And what happens there in Job the 30th chapter, verse 20? He says, I cried out to you, O God. But what happens? He's pleading his case. He's standing before God Almighty. He's there seeking an answer, and he says, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Have you ever pleaded your case before someone and they just looked at you? That's about as painful as it gets, isn't it? If they'll just say something, if they'll just respond, if they'll just fight back, if they'll just argue with you. But no, they just stand there. And look at you. Well, Job feels like he's standing there. And he gets no answer. He gets no answer. This suffering is so unexplainable. So unapplicable. We are unaware of the cosmic drama. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, but now, Paul, but now we see through a glass darkly. And then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Many have looked at this passage of Scripture and they've related it to the end times. They've related to other revelations. But as I look at that, I realize that many times in life we just don't know all that's going on around us. I don't know the heart of God. I don't know the mind of God. I don't know the overall design that God has for my life or the life of anyone around me. And so it's hard to explain. We find ourselves in the unknown. Plato talked about that in the cave, did he not? This place in which Plato had shadows going on. But we as Christians find ourselves many times in that cave in which there's total darkness. Jackie and I, when we first got married, went to Silver Dollar City and went down into the caves. And they turned out the lights. And it's about as dark as you ever could imagine. There was no glimmer of light. You could hear the water on the rocks. You could hear people around you. You could hear people whispering. You could see, you could see nothing. It's a terrible place to be in your own emotional and spiritual life that you stand not knowing where you're at. We find ourselves in that cave of unknown We find ourselves in that place of not understanding. We find ourselves in the silence of heaven without direction, without understanding. But God will respond. And we find that he finally responds to Job. There in the passage of Scripture, chapter 38 of Job, he says, And now finally God answered Job from the eyes of a violent storm, a whirlwind. And he says, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself up, Job. Up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you. I want some straight answers. Well, Job's been asking for this, right? 
Job's been asking for his time in court. Job says, I want to meet God, and I want to stand face-to-face with him, and I want to plead my case, and I want to get out of this maze. I want to get out of this darkness. I want to get out of this silence. I want God to speak to me and tell me what's going. And now God appears through the whirlwind, and he asks Job to man up, to stand up, to get to the place, to stand face-to-face with him, and to answer some questions. But as you read there in chapter 40, you find that God begins to talk about and proclaim his majesty. He goes through creation and he says, Job, what did you have to do with creation? Job, how strong are your arms that you can create these mountains? Job, how powerful are you that you can go down into the deepest of valleys and carve them out? Job, how strong are you that you can cause the snows to fall and the rains to come and the floods to overtake the earth? Job. How mighty are you? God begins to talk about his standards. There in chapter 42, verse 1 through 6, he says, And God proclaims his standard, his morality, his justice, his righteousness. He stands before him as the perfect, all-knowing, all-caring, all-being, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the God of all. And as Chris spoke last Sunday, God Almighty. He is the Almighty. And he proclaims that before Job. And what happens to Job? Job's crying for justice over here, isn't he? And what's God telling him? I'm the mighty God. The two. Now, does God ever in the book of Job say, Job, this is what's happened to you? He never tells Job. He never says there's been this debate between Satan and myself in heaven. He never says that I, take, I took the hedge away from you. He never says I've allowed this to take place. He declares his might. Job declares and cries for his justice. And when Job sees God Almighty, when Job sees the power of God, when Job sees the justice of God, he accepts it. He receives it. Not the understanding of what's gone on, but he understands who God is. He repents there in chapter 42, verse 5 through 6. He repents. You know, how is that? Job hasn't had anything to repent from. But when you come into the presence of God, when you come into the Holy of Holies, when God is lifted up, when people see Jesus as he is, when people understand the grace of God, when people understand the love of God, it burns within our soul. It reveals that which is hidden. It reveals that which we've taken and hidden away. And Job reaffirms his personal experience with God there in verse 5. He says, I see you. I've heard you, but now I see you, who you are. Almighty, all-loving, all-caring, all-compassionate. And I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing once again to come back into your arms. I'm willing again to depend upon you with all that is within me. I don't need the understanding. I don't need the uh, descriptions and the diagrams. I don't need to understand why things are happening. I'm accepting it as your will and your love as a manifestation of who you are in my life. And so God blesses Job with twice the stock and livestock. He blesses him with children. 
And Job once again places his trust in God. You know, as I read scripture, I realize that we as Christians have to come face to face with God. And when we come face to face with God, he reveals something to us, his sovereignty. And if there's an issue, if there is a theological subject, if there is a truth that has to be understood, by all men and women is the sovereignty of God. How powerful is your God? How loving is your God? How all-consuming is your God? How knowing is your God? When you meet God, he reveals that absolute sovereignty to his people. He reveals our belief that everything he does is for our good. It may not feel good, right? It may not be interpreted by the world as being good. But we know that what God is doing and what God is allowing and what God is bringing into our life is for his honor and his glory. That's hard for the world to understand. And that's hard for us as we understand in our own human way to accept. It drives us to repentance. It stops our murmuring. And it allows us to accept the holy will of God. In Romans the 12, chapter verse 1 through 2, he says... Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that will, that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. The only way I can accept the suffering in this world, and the only way I can accept the pain that is around me, the only way I can accept the darkness, and the only way I can accept the silence is to know that God has renewed my mind and that he is my loving and caring God. And I place all that is within me, all that I hope to be, all that I've ever been, all that I could be packed up and stacked up around me, I give it all to him and surrender. You know, there's a song that says, I surrender all. All to him I owe. Every part of me needs to be God's. This morning as you look at Job... And I'm sure you can relate to the pain that he must have been. I'm sure you've been there in the silence of that night. I'm sure you've been there in the darkness of those moments. I'm sure there have been times you wanted to see the diagram. You wanted to see the letter. You wanted to see the order that brought this about. But it has never come. Whether it's at the birth of a child with disabilities whether that's at the sight of our parents as they've grown older and now they find themselves in situations they would have never have wished for for themselves, whether it's your children who have made decisions that you wonder how in the world is God going to deal and make this happen and how is God going to correct this and how is this going to be made right in all eternity. We've been there. And the only way I know how to overcome is to have the Holy Spirit of God transform my mind and allow me to see him as Lord and Savior, my sovereign king, and to surrender all that I have, to surrender all my understanding, to surrender all my emotion, to surrender all my will, and to say, God, your will be done. What you want is first in my life. This morning, have you done that? Are you struggling in the darkness? Is the silence overwhelming? 
Is there confusion? Have you been unable to find the reason for it? Well, you see Jesus high and lifted up. His train, his power, his might, his sacrifice for us. Will you accept that? Will you trust him? Will you step out and believe him? Shall we pray? Father God, many of us feel that pain and we feel that sorrow and we feel that darkness. And Lord, we don't know where the answer is. We don't know how it's going to come about. But Father, we want to trust you. We want to give it to you. We lay before you our children. We lay before you our grandchildren. We lay before you our spouses. We lay before you our careers and our livelihood. We lay it all before you. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Lord, we live in a nation with the threats of war on every hand, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Lord, we don't know who's going to be president, and we don't know where they're going to lead us, but, Father, we're going to give it to you, and we're going to be obedient to your will, and we're going to stand and allow your spirit to open that before us. And, Father, this morning, we may need to come and and kneel before the altar and pray. We may need to take Brother James's hand and pray with him. We may need to find the answer in taking a stand. But, Father, may we do that with your power and your might. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.